Jesus, you are Savior. And we are so grateful that you are. Lord, we need you in our lives. Lord, we pray today as we open up your word that you would be here, that you would fill me with your spirit and help me to proclaim your message clearly. And I pray that you would be in here and you would open our hearts to what you have for us today and that we would grow because of it. Amen. You may be seated. Many people know the name of Jesse Owens. He was a 1936 Olympian who won the gold medal in the long jump. And he also medaled a couple times in sprinting. And he worked hard and he won a lot of victories. That was a bright spot for us in the middle of the Second World War. But does anyone remember who got the silver medal? No? It was a German jumper named Luz Long. Similarly, every American knows the name of our 16th president. It was a lawyer-turned-senator who won the election in 1980 and caused the southern states to secede from the Union. His leadership, though, guided our distressed country through a civil war and brought it back together after the war was over. Whom, of course, am I referring to? Abraham Lincoln. And he is hailed as one of the greatest American presidents. But most people cannot recall the name of the man who lost the election in 1980. Does anyone know? 1880. Sorry, 1880, that's what I meant. It was a man by the name of John C. Breckinridge. Also, in 2002, a new TV show swept American pop culture featuring unknown singers from around the country competing for a record deal. American Idol has become one of the most popular TV shows in history. In the very first year, a 20-year-old girl named Kelly Clarkson won the contest and went on to become a very widely known singer. She's won multiple Grammys and sold millions of albums. Who was the runner-up? Yep, Justin Greeny, which a lot of people don't really know him at all. He's not very popular. A couple of people know him, but not really. Why does nobody really remember people like Justin, John Beckenrich, and Luz Long? The truth is, when it comes to history, nobody cares about second place. The only people that are remembered are those who come in first. Justin Greeny is a really good singer. John C. Beckenridge was probably a really good politician, and Luz Long could jump really far. Unfortunately, good isn't always good enough. Only the best is what matters. Only the best lives on. And I was thinking about that even as I was watching the Olympics these past two weeks, right? You see the person winning gold be like, yeah, I'm the champion, I'm the best in the world. And even bronze is like, yes, I meddled. But silver's like, man, I lost. I think life is a lot like money. You can spend it any way you wish, but you only get to spend it once. And choosing one thing over the rest can be a really difficult thing to do. Yet as we study the Gospel of John, 
and really all the Gospels, we can see that, John, that Jesus mastered the art of doing what was most important. And as we study the interaction that Jesus had with some Pharisees in John chapter 5, we can get some clues to see how Jesus prioritized what is most important in his life and how he was even able to stay on course, though facing adversity. I'd like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. I intentionally didn't have anything up on the screen, including the Bible verses, because I want you guys to be in the Word, to get your Bibles out and to follow along with me. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find it on page 1653. Again, that's John chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1653. Many of you know this story. It's the story of the healing of a man at the pool of Bethesda. You see, a lot of the Jewish people had this belief about this pool called Bethesda. There was this belief that sometimes the water would stir. And the people believed that that was an angel coming in and stirring the water. And there was this belief that the first person to get into the pool would be healed of any ailments or sicknesses that they had. So this was really a place where a lot of sick, ill, paralyzed people would, would live. They would hang around this pool and wait for the water to be stirred, and they would jump in. And here we see Jesus coming to this pool, and he finds a man who has been disabled for 38 years. And Jesus comes up to the man and asks a really simple question. Do you want to be healed? And I think his response is really, really interesting. Um, I don't know about you, but if, if I was you know, paralyzed for 38 years and some guy came up to me and said, Do you want to be healed? I'd be like, Yeah, of course. Why not? But the man's response in verse 7 is interesting. He says, Indeed, I have no one... I'm sorry... I don't know where I got indeed from. That's not even... <laughs> Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down in front of me. Notice the man doesn't really answer Jesus' question. Instead, he states this response of just pure hopelessness. Can you see that in his response? I mean, this guy has nobody... He's just super lonely. He has nobody to help him into the pool. He's just sitting there like just moping. And he doesn't even have enough faith or hope to ask Jesus, yes, will you heal me? This is a man who can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. And we see in verse 8 that Jesus, seeing this hopelessness, completely moves the mountain that this man feels himself under. And he says in verse 9, at once the man was cured. And he picked up his mat and he walked like Jesus told him to in verse 8. I find it interesting though 
that there is nothing in this passage that shows any gratitude coming from this man. He just picks up his mat and he walks off. And the reason I bring that up is because in chapter 9 of John, there's another account of a man who is born blind that Jesus heals. And if you read the two, you'll see that the way John writes them, they're very similar. They almost parallel each other. Yet the reactions and the way that the two men that Jesus healed is very, very different. I strongly encourage you to find some time later this week. Read John 5 about this story of the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years and then go and read John 9 and see how the two differ. I'm not going to tell you how because I want you to actually go and, and read it for yourself. But we see again that this man shows no gratitude. He just picks up his mat and he walks. And then he's going on and this happened on Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders see this guy walking around carrying in his mat. And they said to him, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat on the, on the mat. You know, completely ignoring the fact that, hey, here's a guy who couldn't walk for 38 years. Instead of like being like, dude, you can walk. How cool is that? They're like, dude, you're carrying a mat on the Sabbath. How dare you? How dare you break the law? Like, who cares that you can walk now? You are, you're disobeying this law that we made up. And the irony is the Jewish laws that Moses gave them, the whole point was to encourage people to love God and to love people. And ironically, these guys are so legalistic on following their laws that they have an inability to, to share joy with this man who can now walk. And we see here that the Pharisees are just not very nice. They're not very loving. But the truth is, as we see in verse 12, and uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, that neither is the man. Because look what he does. When the Pharisees come and they are like, you know, condemn him for carrying, in his, carrying his mat, the man points the finger at Jesus. And he kind of blames Jesus. He's like, look, the man who made me well, he's the one that told me to carry my mat. And so, again, we see that this guy is, is not showing gratitude to Jesus. He's just mad that he's in trouble now. And he, like I said, he blames Jesus for it. And so they ask him, who is this fellow? But Jesus had slipped away. And so the man doesn't know who healed him. But later on, we see in verse 14 that this man is in the temple. And Jesus comes up to him. And says to him, hey, good, you're well again. That's good. I'm glad to see that you're healthy. But you need to stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. We see here that in this man's life, his worst problem was not the fact that he couldn't walk. This man's worst problem in his life was the fact that he is a sinner separated from God and is in need of a Savior. And Jesus comes up to him and offers him an opportunity to repent, to stop sinning, or something worse may happen to him, which is eternal separation from God. And that having that broken relationship not repaired, which would be far worse than not being able to walk, 
not just for 38 years, but for the rest of your life. Look at what the man does, though, in verse 15. The man went away. He ran to the Jewish leaders and told on Jesus that it was Jesus who made them well. I can just see Jesus, after that happening, being like, um, Hey, uh, Monica, can you uh, pull that knife out of my back for me? I mean, this guy just kind of like completely stabs Jesus in the back. And a a result of this man going and telling on Jesus, Jesus now has to have a conversation with the Pharisees, as we see in verse 16. That because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. But in his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work. To this very day I am working too. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling himself God. I'm sorry, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus, in his defense to these guys saying, why are you doing all this healing and stuff on the Sabbath? That breaks the law. Jesus says, you know what? God isn't under your man-made laws. These laws that you made up. God is not under them. And I, only, I listen to God. I don't listen to you. God is my Father. And this is really a profound verse because it goes on in verse 18 to clearly state that now this just threw fuel on their fire because the Jewish leaders saw this response of Jesus calling God his Father as a claim to equality with God. And I think this is really important because we as Christians, we definitely believe that Jesus has equality with God. But a lot of times, some people will say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. He just claimed to be the Son of God. But we see here from this verse that it's very clear that a claim to being the Son of God is the same as claiming equality with God. So the question arises then, Why didn't Jesus just say, I'm God, I don't listen to you, I'm God, I do what I want. Why did he go through the motions of calling himself the Son of God? And I think the answer to that is Jesus wanted to avoid confusion. If Jesus would have come and called himself God, there could have been the confusion that Jesus was an alternative to Yahweh, or even a replacement to Yahweh. And I think Jesus, wanting to be very careful to show that the Father still exists, I still exist, and I am God. We're both the same God. We're both the same thing. I don't replace Him, and I'm not an alternative, but I am equal with Him. And by Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, it allowed Him to strike that balance of saying, I am God, so is my Father. We are both God. And allowed him to keep the tension there of the Trinity. And then Jesus goes on after making this claim of complete deity in verse 19. To read, Verily, truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Jesus here, I think, gives us a very neat key as to how he is able 
to stay on course and keep what is important in his life. He talks about how he does nothing on his own power. Instead, he listens to what the Father says. And he follows the Father's guidance. The best way I've heard this explained, it's this idea that Jesus was 100% fully man. Right? And he was also 100% fully God. And it's this idea that when Jesus, the creator of the universe, came down and took on flesh and became the God incarnate, it's like he, he became a fully human being with a God card. He had all the powers of God in a card, and he could do whatever he wanted to do. I want to evaporate a sweet chariot. Ching, he's got it. He's God. He had the power to do that. I want to have superpowers and be able to fly. Cha-ching. He could do that. He was God. I want to set myself up as the wisest ruler and be a king. Cha-ching. He's got it. But we see from the Gospels that that's not what Jesus did. And we see clearly from this verse that that's not what Jesus did. It's almost as if he took his God powers, his God card, and stuck it in his pocket and decided not to use it. Instead, we see everything that Jesus did was under the authority of the Father and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus depended completely on the Holy Spirit in his life. And I think that's so key for us. Because I don't know about you, but I don't have a God card. I'm not God. I can't do all those cool things. But as a believer, I have the Holy Spirit. And as a believer, I have God as my Father. And I have the ability to follow God and do the things that He tells me to do. And because I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I have the Holy Spirit living in me to guide me and to give me power. Yet how often do I follow what God wants me to do? How often am I taking use of the Holy Spirit's power and living a victorious Christian life that God has me. And I know as I, as I get older, I, I know that I'm getting better at it. But there are still a lot of times when I'm depending on me and not God. And I know my prayer for myself is to depend more on God and less on me. What about you? Who are you depending on in your life? Are you trusting in the Holy Spirit to guide you and to give you power? Or are you depending on yourself? If we want to learn to stay the course and to pursue what is best in our life, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit, which is, by the way, blank number one. And again, we see from this passage that Jesus did that. He took his leading completely from the Holy Spirit and from the Father. So the question arises then, well, what did the Father have him do? Well, thankfully, Jesus goes on to explain that. Starting in verse 21, he says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Son judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may Honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. 
Very I truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, they have eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but to please him who sent me. In this passage, we see, first of all, that Jesus, to stay the course and to follow what's most important, first of all, he depended on the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he knew what the course was. In order to stay the course, we need to know the course. And in this passage, Jesus highlights three things that are repeated quite a few times. They are, first of all, to bring the dead to life. Secondly, judgment. And thirdly, to bring honor and glory to the Father, to the Godhead. I want to take some time now to unpack those three things a little bit for you and and see how Jesus did these three things and how they apply to our lives. The first thing that Jesus did was raise the dead to life. And I believe this is referring to a spiritual death. It's this idea that because of what happened in Genesis 3, When Adam and Eve ate the fruit and became sinful, all of mankind are now sinful. And I don't think I have to, you know, illustrate that for you. I think we all know, if we examine our lives, we all do sinful things. And all of us are on a path that leads to eternal separation from God. All of us are on a path that leads to death. Just as Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. Every single person who has ever lived is on this path leading toward death because of our sin. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, paid that penalty for sin for everyone. And as it says in John 5 verse 24, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. It's this idea that Jesus' mission on the earth was to die for the dead so that the dead may have life. And everyone who trusts in Jesus alone can have life. And one of my favorite passages in Scripture is 1 Peter 4.6 because it talks about how as believers, our mission on earth as well should be to bring the dead to life. In 1 Peter, starting in chapter 3, verse 15, Peter, who is one of Jesus' disciples, states, But in your heart, set apart 
Christ Jesus as Lord and be ready to give an answer for the hope that you profess. And it goes on to talk about how we need to be living righteous lives among people who might even persecute us for our faith. They might laugh at us. They might think we're really dumb for believing in Jesus. Um, And they might do things like that to us. But we continue to live righteously among them with the hope that those who are dead in their sins will see our righteous life and come to faith, bringing those dead people to life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think for us that really requires two things. We need to be living lives that show proof that we are followers of Jesus Christ. The question is, let's say tomorrow Obama declares Christianity illegal. That anyone who follows Christ should be put in prison. I don't think he's going to do that, but let's pretend that it happened. What evidence would they have to lock you up? What evidence would there be from your life that they would have to lock you up? I don't know about you, but my prayer is that it would be inconclusive evidence. Say there is not a doubt in our minds that David Teller follows Christ. And I hope the same is true of you. Secondly, we need to be living lives that are worthy of imitation. That idea that we're following Christ in a way that we're bringing other people to Christ. And those people... That, that start to follow Christ through our leading. If, if they follow the exact same way we follow, would they be correctly following Jesus? Are our lives providing proof that we are followers and are our lives worthy of imitation by other people? And are we ready to not just live out our faith, but are we ready to proclaim it to people when they ask about the hope that we profess? I think these three things are really, really important. And we need to live in such a way as believers that we are shaking the dead, the spiritually dead. That they have no choice when they see us but to also see Christ. And that's how Jesus lived, and it's how he wants us as his followers to live. Secondly, we saw that part of the way Jesus knew the course of what he was trying to do was to raise the dead to life. Secondly, was to judge humanity. And I think this is sometimes hard for us to grasp, because we as 21st century Americans, we don't like the idea of a judgy Jesus, do we? Like, this is kind of a hard pill to swallow. The fact that, like, Jesus, this guy who, like, we put up on a pedestal as this, like, guy who just loves. And that's rightly so. But we also have to see that Jesus also is a judge. And he will judge humanity. However, because of what he did on the cross, he opened the path to salvation. And now, because of Jesus, the meter for judgment is no longer based about how dead in your sins you are, but whether or not you stay in the grave. 
You see, Jesus offers salvation from sin and eternal life to everyone that puts their faith in him alone. But this is the line in the sand. Jesus' death for sin brings eternal life for those who believe in him, but eternal death to those who don't. You see, rejection of Jesus' free gift of salvation is the final nail in the coffin for those who are in sin. They have a way out, but rejection is that nail in the coffin. And we see from this passage that the Pharisees, and in my opinion, this man who Jesus had just healed, were essentially putting that nail in the coffin by rejecting the free gift. And judgment, in a sense, comes by way of the way of life, by not taking the path. I picture it this way. Imagine you are driving on a road and you see a sign that says, Bridge out. Stop, turn around, you're going to fall off the bridge. In a sense, ignoring that sign is the thing that ultimately puts you off the edge. Because you were already headed that way. You were offered an opportunity to stop and turn around. You ignored it. Leading to you driving off the bridge. And in the same way, ignoring Jesus' offer of repentance and salvation is what drives people to drive themselves off the bridge in judgment. So what about you? Have you placed your faith in Christ Jesus alone? For the forgiveness of sins? Are you trusting in Him alone? Not your works, not your good deeds. But are you trusting completely in what Jesus did for you? And if not, what are you waiting for? I strongly encourage you, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, talk to someone about it. Place your faith in Him. And experience the love and the grace of the creator of the universe. He's waiting with open arms for you. If you have placed your faith in Christ, what are you doing for those around you who haven't yet? Are you living a life that shows proof that you're a Christian? Are you ready and willing and actively sharing the gospel with the people around you who are on a path to destruction and eternity away from God. And each one of us in this room has the ability to offer salvation through Jesus Christ. And that, that needs to be one of the most important things in our life. Thirdly, as we saw, Jesus knew his cause as bringing the dead to life and bringing judgment to those who don't. Jesus' third cause was to bring honor to the Godhead. And I think the cool thing here is, well, the question is, what brings honor to God? First of all, judgment of sin. When God judges sin, his character is revealed. His holiness is shown that he is a God who is perfect. He is without sin. He is so without sin that he can't even stand to be with sin. 
And it also shows that God is justice. Right? He's not a judge who is going to be, well, you murdered your family and shot up a bunch of people and, you know, did all these terrorist acts. That's okay. I don't care. He's just. And thirdly, he, it shows his love. That God knows that we all faced injustice in our lives. He knows that people hurt us. And he offers repentance to those and a life change to those who have hurt us. But we can take comfort in the fact that God will deal with the people that have hurt us who don't repent. And we as believers, we need to trust in God to take care of the wrongs that are done to us and allow Him to be the judge rather than taking it into our own hands. And know that Him um, judging the sin is something that shows His character. And He can do it in a way that isn't going to be sinful like most of the time it is for us. Secondly, the thing that brings glory and honor to God is bringing the dead to life. The forgiveness of sin shows God's character. It shows His mercy. This idea that although each one of us has disobeyed God and we are worthy of death, God shows mercy on us. And because Jesus paid the penalty on the cross for our sin, the debt has been paid and God is shown merciful. When God forgives sins, His grace is shown. The fact that He gives us stuff we don't deserve. The fact that He blesses us with families that love us. The fact that He blesses us with opportunities to join Him in His mission to bring the dead to life. That's grace. And that shows God's character and brings Him honor. And it shows, salvation of humanity shows His love for people that don't deserve it. It shows how much of a loving God He is, ready to forgive those who ask Him for it. The fact that God took people who were literally His enemies forgave them and made them his children is amazing to me. It it amazes me that God calls me his son even after all the stupid things I've done in my life. But there is a way for me to honor God now that I am his child. And the third way that God can be honored is through the obedience of of his children. When we follow the plan and the purpose given to us by God, the Father, and carried out through the power of the Holy Spirit, we bring glory and honor to God. And our response to his love, his grace, and his mercy in us should be obedience. We're not obedient to God out of obligation or trying to earn salvation. No. Our obedience is motivated 
out of love. The fact that God loved us so much that he would die in my place motivates me to want to serve him and follow him and to love him back and to love others around me. That's why I obey. Not because I'm trying to say, hey, look, God, look at me. I can love people. Aren't I great? Because usually when I try to do it by myself, I'm pretty bad at it. But I do it out of wanting to spread his love to people around me. And this love that motivates us is the love that Jesus focused on when he was on the way to Calvary. And that is what motivated him to stay the course, to continue to depend upon the Holy Spirit, and to continue to stay focused on what was most important. Even when he was stabbed in the back by a man he just healed, and when Pharisees hated him because he wanted to die for them. It's that love that drove him to the cross. And it's that love that I pray motivates us to obedience. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, your love is amazing. God, and we're so thankful that you cared enough about us to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin and show us love and grace, that you stayed the course and that you continue to depend upon the Holy Spirit to show the example. Lord, I pray that we would be obedient and that we would follow you motivated by love. Amen.